Welcome to Side Effects May Vary, the podcast from the Monash Faculty of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences. I'm John Palmer. So you may have noticed that we are in the middle, or more optimistically, towards the end of a global pandemic. And the reason that many of us are optimistic that the end is in sight is because we have not one, but several vaccines rolling out across the world. Now, these vaccines have been developed just incredibly swiftly. Two of the facts that are frequently thrown about are that the average journey to market for a new drug takes 10 years and that prior to this, the vaccine that had been developed the fastest was the one for mumps and that took four years. So the speed with which the coronavirus vaccines have been developed seems to have led to some misgivings in the community about the safety of the vaccine. How can we possibly know it's not going to hurt us when the whole thing was done so rapidly? Now, spoiler alert, we have seven interviewees in this episode, all of whom are very well-credentialed academic researchers, and five of whom are actual biomedical researchers with highly relevant experience in medicines development, and none of them thinks that any shortcuts or truncations or corner cutting have taken place here. But of course, if you are like many people, you don't automatically feel comfortable outsourcing your judgment to experts, which raises a question. How do you make an informed judgment in a really complex area where you don't necessarily have a whole lot of background knowledge? Most of us aren't biomedical scientists, we don't know how to interpret clinical trial results or how to interrogate their design or conclusions, but we still have to come to a decision. So what this episode is about is trying to provide lay people with, I guess, a a critical framework with which to approach vaccine safety. So it's not about saying, yes, vaccine X is safe, although, again, everyone we interview thinks the major vaccines are safe. It's about equipping you with the skills and the background knowledge to make your own judgment. How do you think about it? What are the various questions you should be asking? What types of evidence are there? What are their relative weights? And how do they relate to one another? A big challenge in getting to grips with any new subject area is always figuring out how all the information fits together to stop it from becoming this kind of undifferentiated fact soup. So we've tried to chunk the inquiry down as small and as logically as possible. And the big distinction that we're going to try and make is one I think of as being between merits on one hand and procedure on the other. By merits, we're referring to the underlying science, so how the vaccines work, what the research has told us about any side effects, and so on. By procedure, we're really referring to a couple of things. The regulatory environment that is designed to protect us, all of the bars that a vaccine has to clear, all the hoops it has to jump through before somebody sticks it in your arm. But we're also talking about our own internal thought processes. What should we be taking into account and weighing the risks and benefits? What shouldn't we be taking into account? How do cognitive biases come into play and how do we guard against them? So part one of this episode will focus on the merits, part two on the procedure. At time of recording, there are a few major vaccines in play. In Australia, where we are based and where our metrics tell us most of our listeners come from, there are two vaccines currently approved for use, the AstraZeneca and the Pfizer. In New Zealand, where we also get a few downloads, only the Pfizer is approved right now, but it looks like the AstraZeneca isn't too far away. And we'll also be discussing the other major vaccine, the Moderna vaccine, which is being rolled out across the US and the UK and elsewhere. In order to get an idea of how these particular vaccines work, it's useful to have an understanding of how vaccines in general work. So to explain that, we turn to Professor Colin Powton, who works here at the Monash Institute of Pharmaceutical Sciences, where he heads up our work in drug delivery disposition and dynamics. 
One of the things that Colin has been doing over the course of the pandemic is leading the charge on our own vaccine candidate, which we spoke about in episode one of the series. Now, that vaccine candidate is not one of the three major vaccines. It's still at trial stage in collaboration with the Peter Doherty Institute, so we don't have a horse in this race. In the event that that changes, I will absolutely come back to record this segment again and make it all about how great the Monash vaccine is. But until then, here's Colin. It's really at the sort of, in the late 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, that people started to find out what these organisms were, or, well, not so much organisms with viruses, you could, it's a matter of debate whether they're life forms, but they they certainly live in our systems. And um, it wasn't until that period of time, really the turn of the 20th century, when people really started to understand what viruses were, and obviously, as a result of that, it made it much more possible to to start making vaccines against both viral infections and also bacterial infections. And so really, there was a period of time, perhaps between um, around that sort of 1890 period to about 1950, when there was a really, really sort of consistent and strong development of vaccine technology. Um, since then, it's changed again because now we have um, genetic sequencing, molecular biology, and so our approach to vaccine development is different. But um, there, there has been a sort of steady development of vaccines as they've been needed over the past hundred years or so. In the early stages, it was a matter of trying to isolate the organism and then do something to inactivate it and then use the whole organism as the vaccine. The approach was to try and isolate the virus and then inactivate it in some way and inject it so that it's pro- the proteins on the outside of the virus could be recognized by our immune system and we could raise a, an immune response against it. But the, the science behind it has changed quite a lot in recent years as we've been able to make um, particular protein components of viruses. So instead of using an inactivated whole virus, or sometimes um, they use an attenuated virus, and what that means is sometimes it was a living virus, but one which had been attenuated in a way that it was not such a threat, what didn't really cause pathological symptoms, but um, was still living. And there are still some viruses, some vaccines, which are attenuated viruses. Some of the traditional ones are inactivated, either chemically or by radiation. But more recently, we have developments where we're making fragments of the virus. So individual proteins, or in the case of these new technologies, genetic sequences that encode for those proteins. So the technology has changed a little bit, but the basic idea is still the same. You have to expose the immune system to something, part of the virus, or a part of a protein which makes up the virus. And that, um, you know, how, how you do that is, you know, ultimately doesn't change the immune response. It might change the safety profile. So we're seeing now a new technology based particularly around having better control of the vaccine product because a viral product, which you then inactivate in some way, is a bit messy, difficult to characterize and probably from that point of view a little less safe in in the way it uh, can be controlled as a pharmaceutical product. 
So that's the general idea behind vaccination. But if you've been paying even the slightest bit of attention, you will no doubt be aware that the Moderna vaccine and the Pfizer vaccine are a new kind of vaccine called an mRNA or messenger RNA vaccine. In addition to asking Colin to explain that, we also spoke to a chemical engineer called Professor Christy Ainsley from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, to tell us more about the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is a different kind of beast called an adenovirus vaccine. Christy comes into our orbit through a thing called Farm Alliance, which is a partnership between us and two schools of pharmacy that are kind of aligned in terms of our approach to education and our research profiles. The Eshelman School of Pharmacy from UNC Chapel Hill and the School of Pharmacy at University College London. In part two of this episode, we'll be talking to someone from UCL. Our three schools collaborate across a whole bunch of different areas, and it's really useful to have their expertise and experience to draw upon in areas that are complementary to what we do. It's also helpful when we want a North American or European perspective, like, for example, now. So normally when you think of vaccines, there's kind of always something in them that is similar enough to the pathogen or the the virus or the the bacteria or what have you, that promotes that immune response, right? So in in each of the COVID vaccines are different. The the Pfizer and the Moderna ones are very similar, but then there's other vaccines like the Oxford one that are are a little bit different. So I'm going to just focus on those two lipid nanoparticles. So in that, they have uh, nucleic acid, so mRNA, which is the the pattern that your cell uses from DNA to make proteins, right? So it's kind of like it goes up, you know, there's mechanisms that go up to the DNA kind of draft out the pattern, and that's the mRNA, and then the mRNA, you know, takes that and, and, and makes proteins from it. And so that mRNA is what's encoding the pathogen, basically, the virus, the coronavirus, uh, in these lipid nanoparticles. And so that's kind of the new bit. Um, so, you know, and so they had had mRNA in there before. They've had what they call short interfering RNA in there before. Um, they've had a variety of different other similar what they call nucleic acids, uh, in these platforms for other applications. So the two mRNA vaccines, the BioNTech Pfizer one and the Moderna one, are very similar in concept. They're both vaccines that encode the whole spike protein, and the formulation, the packaging of the RNA is very similar in both cases. Um, They've both done trials on a similar scale, and they've both come with good safety records so far. Um, I think, you know, there will be some adverse events to these vaccines, but the, the, the adverse events they're reporting so far in the, in the, public, in, in the public domain are mainly um, adverse events like fatigue, headache, and some localized irritation at the injection site. We're not really seeing, we haven't seen any events that are, you'd think of as severe adverse events. Um, although there probably will be some, it's not realistic to be, to think that there are no adverse events for the vaccines. But um, given the number of people that have been administered the vaccine, so between them, it means that at least 40,000 or so people will have been administered the vaccine. They seem to be very safe. Um, we, we haven't got all the data yet, hasn't all been published, although obviously the regulatory authorities that have been looking at these will have a, a much more a bigger data package than has been published. Um, but certainly there, there are publications and these companies are 
have been good actually at publishing the data quite quickly. It takes a long time to write these papers. They're very a lot of a lot of time to analyze the data and write them up. So I think we'll see um, publications around the phase three efficacy studies quite soon. So generally at the moment it looks very positive indeed because they're very efficacious in preventing the disease. And given the safety record that we know about, um, these these vaccines look to be tremendous vaccines, really much better than perhaps one would have expected. There probably are advances and improvements that could be made, but these vaccines do seem to be really good. So it's very positive uh, once we can get enough doses rolled out. So that, in a nutshell, is how these vaccines work. But of course, it's only part of the story because pretty much every medicine in the world has side effects and coronavirus vaccines are no exception. So then the question becomes, do, taken together, the severity and frequency of the side effects outweigh the benefits? And in answering that question, we've arguably put our thumb on the scale against the vaccines because we've excluded from the sphere of our inquiry any speculation as to how well the vaccines will work to stop anybody who gets them from passing the coronavirus onto other people. So we're only looking at the benefits and risks to the person who gets the vaccine. And we're not doing that because we think you're all a pack of psychopaths who are capable only of thinking in terms of your own self-interest, but rather because it appears that the data still isn't quite clear on that and we wanted to play this with an absolutely straight bat. We're also not going to go heavily into the benefits of getting the vaccine because the benefits are pretty obvious. It's either not getting coronavirus or getting a case with much reduced severity. This is what Christy had to say. I would have to say the risks are far less than the reward. Um, And, you know, these have been given to a large population of people by this point. Um, And so although there are some associated risks, I always say when I when I teach vaccines, I always say it's just like pharmaceuticals. There's, you know, they have a risk associated with them with toxicity and other things that varies from drug to drug. And vaccines have a very limited risk associated with them, but of course the benefit outweighs those risks significantly. Um, and so neither, you know, neurotherapeutic or a vaccine are a hundred percent safe, but that risk is so small in comparison to the risk of whatever that infection is, whether it be chickenpox or coronavirus or influenza. And so that's really where you have to weigh things and you have to weigh, you know, is this a greater benefit than it is a risk. And certainly it is. Um, and then you also have to have some faith in the people giving the uh, vaccine to you. You know, you have to wait for 30 minutes. That's to make sure there aren't adverse events. Uh, and if there are adverse events, they know how to handle that. You know, they probably have an EpiPen nearby if there's going to be an anaphylactic shock event. Um, and so we have heard of, you know, different uh, side effects, such as people going into shock or people uh, you know, having hives or other things that do often occur even with influenza vaccines. Um, you know, but we have to, you know, know that our medical care professionals are aware that these might occur. You know, they're watching for them. They're prepared in case they do occur. And, you know, we haven't, we haven't seen people, you know, uh, not coming through to the other side um, after getting the vaccine. If you look at, you know, the rates of anaphylactic shock, they're on par with what you would see with an influenza vaccine, but you know there might be in a very very small number of individuals limited side effects. On a whole, you know the vaccine is beneficial to our community and our world, and so um, we have to think maybe 
I guess, of the greater good when you think about it. They found that um, the side effects included muscle fatigue and or just overall fatigue in 9.7% of participants, muscle pain in 8.9%, joint pain in 5.2%, and headache in 45 And so severe side effects included fatigue and headache, which was in 38 and 2% of, of the patients. So very low numbers, um, fewer than 2% of the people who received uh, either the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine had fevers above uh, 39 degrees Celsius. And so, yeah, again, we're talking about a very small percentage of people of this pool of 700,000 uh, that had these side effects. Um, and again, they're, they're side effects similar to if you had, you know, an, an infection. Um, you know, we, we feel kind of down when we're not feeling well. We get muscle pain where our injection site is, joint pain often um, you get with viral infections. And so, again, it's very common with infections and vaccines, but very low percentages. One of the things that struck me when Christy was talking about side effects was that she was focused on short-term or acute side effects, allergic reactions and anaphylactic shocks and so forth. But of course, many of the reservations that people have had about vaccinations, certainly in the past few decades, have been about longer-term side effects, ones that don't necessarily become apparent until long after the vaccine is administered. Uh, I'm thinking most obviously of the famous Andrew Wakefield MMR hoax, which was published in The Lancet in 1998, and despite having been debunked thoroughly and repeatedly, still seems to lurk on the edges of people's thinking. So we thought it was worth addressing the question of long-term effects explicitly. Um, in addition to speaking to Christy, Kate Carthew also talked to Professor Michelle McIntosh, who has many fingers and many pies, but was here speaking largely in her capacity as the director of the Medicines Manufacturing Innovation Centre. The MMIC is headquartered at Monash and works not so much to design new drugs, but to find better ways to manufacture existing drugs to make them cheaper and higher quality and so forth. So safety is something she really thinks a lot about. The severe adverse effects would have been identified in the clinical trials. So it's more if there were just very rare unexpected adverse effects that, you know, if they've done a clinical trial with 50,000 patients, um, you know, if there's an adverse effect that's only seen one in every 100,000, we may not have seen that yet. I'm less concerned that there'll be, you know, adverse effects that will present themselves, you know, several years after vaccination. I know that some people have expressed concern about that, but I do think that it will be sort of, you know, what we see in the, you know, the immediate reaction to the vaccine or in the, you know, first three, four, five months of the vaccine. And it's just what will we see that is rare and low risk, but something that people want to know about. That's standard for any drug. Um, once a drug is approved, there's only been a certain number of patients, you know, tens of thousands of people who've been treated, and then there'll be post-marketing surveillance that is conducted by the company to collect data and any evidence of rare side effects that present themselves once a product gets to market. By the time they've, you know, vaccinated several million people in the UK and the US, that will have all happened before the vaccine makes it to Australia in March. Uh, and so uh, I would be 
comfortable being vaccinated after that many people have have received the vaccine. I think what we don't know is how the vaccine will be effective or will it be effective in response to any mutations in the virus? So just like the flu requires seasonal vaccinations because it mutates, you know, year on year, uh, we don't know whether the mRNA vaccines will, you know, need to be modified in response to any mutation that occurs. Um, But I'm you know, feeling confident about the safety of the vaccines that are are being brought to market. Long-term, really, for this type of formulation, you would expect it to kind of uh, break down in the body over time after all the mRNA is released, after all the lipids have broken down by the body, because, of course, lipids are natural in your body and there's something that can be degraded in your body. Uh, The PEG can be cleared from your body. And so over time, it should completely dissipate more or less from the injection site. Um, And so that's unique to say some other vaccines that have been around since the 1920s that have aluminum hydroxide in them that that don't degrade as as easily as perhaps these these, um, lipid nanoparticles should in the body. When I read papers about side effects of vaccines or uh, things that occur, most of them are very, very short-lived and they have kind of this shorter phase. such as the fever, the injection site concern, things like this. Um, long-term, you know, you again, with, with something like the aluminum hydroxide alum formulations, you can get some granulomas forming or basically like knots in your muscles and things like that. But with, with these, again, just speaking about the liquid nanoparticle vaccines, they should be fully degradable within the system. So then those long-term effects... Um, would be lessened, I think, than some of these more historical vaccines that have been around and are being uh, kind of waned out. So if most of the risks are acute and we are aware of them, that raises the possibility that they can be managed. Either the incidence or the severity can be minimized. Here's Christy again. If you have shellfish allergies, if you have, uh, you know, um, peanut allergies, if you have these food allergies where you, that are generally, uh, you know, Result in anaphylactic that can result in anaphylactic shock. They're generally mediated by an antibody called IgE antibody, um, which they think is the partly mediating the, these uh, adverse responses. And so it's something that you know you can discuss with the person giving you the vaccine. If it's your care provider, they might already know these things. Um, and so uh, you know the, it's something that you can really you know discuss with them and be, make them aware. And usually that ends up being um, kind of a uh, something that can still allow you to get the vaccine, but if you're concerned about and think you need added care, then of course, then then they can they can offer that to you. You know, when this initially came out, I have a, a close colleague at UNC, Scott Cummins, who who does great work with with food allergies, and so you know he had a lot of discussion with with his patients about it because the communities already they they're already worried about what they're putting into their their mouth, right? And so then they're they're worried about other things too, and so. I think, you know, as long as you're aware of your health and you're able to articulate those, I think that can do a lot uh, of good in, in, in both helping the patient, calming them, but also just communicating to the healthcare provider to let them know what could be uh, an issue. With vaccines in general, you do see a lot of allergy-related things. I mean, you're, you're, you're tweaking the immune system, right? And so you do see things like hives. Anaphylactic shock is a type of hypersensitivity, just like hives. It's just obviously a more severe type of uh, hypersensitivity. And so there's variations between that where you, you know, a full body rash 
or a um, you know a distinct rash that say is donut shape or things like these. These are things that again historically have been associated with vaccines, uh, and I think individuals who are common to that have have seen it with other vaccines. I don't think they'd be surprised if they saw it with the COVID vaccine. But it doesn't again it doesn't necessarily mean concern. Uh, you know, but something you can articulate to the, the person who's administering the vaccine. You know, I previously have been given, say, a tetanus vaccine or whatever, and I've had hives. That's something of note that you can say to that caregiver that hopefully will help with calming the patient's fears as well as any problems that might come up if something does happen with the vaccine. In a way, I think that completes the discussion on the merits. We've looked at how the vaccine works, what the risks are, and how they can be mitigated. But I think there might be something deep in our lizard brain that wakes up when we think about vaccines. We have this deep-seated, visceral aversion to germs and uncleanliness, and vaccines require us to inject at least a part of the disease past all of our natural defences and directly into our bodies. And even though academically we know the virus to be weakened or insulated or dead, or even in the case of mRNA vaccines, dismembered, you think... Maybe it'll catch my immune system on an off day, or maybe it's only mostly dead, and this is all part of its cunning plan to spring back to life once it's inside. And every year when people get their flu shots, you tend to hear at least one person say, I got my flu shot, and then I got really sick afterwards, and I think the flu shot gave me the flu. So I had to ask, will these vaccines give me coronavirus? So flu vaccines, the general flu vaccine, there there are a wide variety of flu vaccines, but the... um, the flu vaccine that we generally get is what they call an inactivated virus. So they take the virus and they chemically inactivate it. So it has all the parts, but they aren't working. They can't make you sick. Um, but what it can do is it can make you feel not so hot, right? It can make you feel like uh, malaise or, you know, kind of under the weather a bit. Um, and that's, again, just your immune system getting ready to fight. It's getting ready to say, you know, this is next time I see this pathogen, I'm going to knock it out. And so that's an important thing. I think, you know, it, when you get naturally infected, you get a fever, you get chills, you get all those things. And it might, and vaccines can be, you know, similar feeling, but less of a severity. And it just means your immune system's doing what it's supposed to do. And I think if people thought of vaccines that way, it might be a little less of a, a stigma. Um, it, it is something that naturally happens. It's just a more effective way to invoke that natural response. Okay, so that's it for merits. Part two of this episode will focus on procedure, which I think is easier to get a grasp on from a lay perspective, as it can be sort of content neutral. But before we go, Kate's conversation with Michelle McIntosh went down a rabbit hole that I thought was just too fascinating not to share. The data that we're seeing on vaccines is fantastic, and I think it probably exceeds most people's expectations in terms of its efficacy and um, the speed to which they've been able to conduct large-scale clinical trials, prove efficacy and safety and get uh, approval in some countries. But a vaccine alone isn't the full solution. Intranasal heparin is one of several um, COVID-related projects uh, that we've worked on this year, and I've really enjoyed, I've enjoyed all of them, but the heparin's probably been the one that I've personally been involved with uh, the most, and that involves a, a consortium of research institutes across Victoria. One of the things about intranasal heparin is that heparin is 
it's already manufactured at scale under good manufacturing practices. So the the most important part of the product is already available. And what we were looking at is repurposing that. And so taking the heparin that is normally used as an anticoagulant and injected into patients, it's used a lot for cardiovascular therapy. So it's the second most um, frequently prescribed um, drug in the world. Uh, And so what we were doing was taking what was normally the injectable product and putting it into a nasal spray. Uh, And because heparin is such a large molecule with negative charges on it, uh, it can act as um, something that will bind to a virus like the SARS-CoV-2, the coronavirus responsible for COVID-19. It can bind to it in a non-specific way, but it can also bind to it to block what normally um, the virus binds to an what's called an ACE2 receptor, an angiotensin converting 2 receptor that is expressed in high concentrations in the nasal epithelial cells. And it uses naturally occurring heparan sulfate um, proteoglycans as a co-binder. So the two work in tandem to allow the virus to be um, sort of taken up into the cell where viral replication occurs. So the heparin, uh, intranasal heparin, our hypothesis is that it will block that sort of co-binding process and inhibit internalisation and viral replication. And because it's a really large molecule, it's not going to be absorbed from the nasal cavity. It won't get into the systemic circulation. It won't cause adverse side effects. And it's been used in respiratory medicine for other viruses and treatments for over three decades. So the safety is there, access to the, the product is there, and we only need to do a fairly small targeted um, trial to prove that it does or doesn't work in in preventing the spread of the virus Uh, and we could have an abbreviated path to at least emergency use or emergency access. That's it for part one of our episode on the safety of coronavirus vaccinations. And in view of the fact that this is all kind of a big deal, we're releasing part two simultaneously. That piece will delve more into the psychological and sociological underpinnings of our decision-making processes, and it will look at the various safeguards designed to protect us as healthcare consumers. Thanks to our guests, Christy Ainsley, Colin Powton and Michelle McIntosh. This episode was produced by Kate Carthew, Dave Rogers and me, John Palmer. Most of the music throughout the episode is also by Dave Rogers, but the track you're hearing now is called Empty Shot and it's by a Melbourne band called Duke Batavia. Look, it's all just an empty-
हमसे खाएंगे 